The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today it is my pleasure to introduce a colleague, Trisha Thompson. She also is a registered dietitian, but also an internationally recognized expert on celiac disease and the gluten-free diet. Trisha, thank you for being with me today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of your show. We spoke before the interview, and I said, gosh, it just seems like every time you turn around, there's new gluten-free product on the shelf, there's more people reporting that they have a gluten intolerance. What's going on? Well, I think a couple of things. Going back to 2004, I think it was, the National Institutes of Health did a consensus development conference on celiac disease. And I think that really helped put it on the map and increase physician awareness of this disease. So, I mean, still today, only 5% of people who actually, in the United States, who actually have celiac disease know they have celiac disease. But I think more people are being diagnosed because more physicians know to look for it. But we still have a long way to go. Now, there's celiac disease, and then there are different degrees of gluten intolerance. Is that right? Basically, there is celiac disease, which is defined as an autoimmune disease. And then we have non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is kind of new terminology, and it's basically defined as a non-autoimmune, although it still is an immune response, but a non-autoimmune response and a non-allergic response to gluten. Unfortunately, it remains a diagnosis of exclusion. There are no known diagnostic markers for it right now, but if somebody is tested for celiac disease and they do not have celiac disease and they're tested for allergies and they don't have allergies, and they're put on a gluten-free diet and they feel better, then oftentimes they are given a diagnosis of this non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Are there symptoms that are red flags to you as a clinician? Oh, yes. For celiac disease, definitely. If somebody has undiagnosed GI symptoms, such as diarrhea, constipation, gas, Weight loss, that is a huge red flag. I like to tell anybody who has ever been diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome or irritable bowel disease and they have never been tested for celiac disease, get tested for celiac disease. A lot of people are misdiagnosed as having irritable bowel disease. If somebody has unexplained iron deficiency anemia, unexplained infertility, reoccurring fetal loss. These are all red flags that they may, in fact, have celiac disease. If they have type 1 diabetes and unexplained GI symptoms, that's another red flag. If they have any first or second degree relatives with celiac disease, they also should be tested. And so once the patient is suspected of having this disease, 
Is it a blood test? Is it a biopsy of the small intestine? What are the next steps if there's a suspicion that the disease is present? Well, the first thing I think your listeners should know, do not start a gluten-free diet. If you think that you have problems with gluten, go see your doctor and ask to be tested. And you start out, it's a simple blood test. Don't even think intestinal biopsy at this point. Just think blood tests. And what are we looking for? those blood tests, are indicative of celiac disease, then the gold standard is still to uh, have a small intestinal biopsy, unfortunately. Hopefully someday that will change, but that's still the gold standard. And what are we looking for in the blood test? People should really make sure that they are getting the proper blood tests. And what these blood tests do is they measure certain antibody levels. So they want to make sure they're getting what's called, and this is shorthand, an IgA TTG test and or an IgA EMA test. So if those are positive, then unfortunately the physician is probably going to recommend a biopsy and then they'll take that biopsy and they'll look for the characteristic markers for celiac disease. There are also genetic tests, but unfortunately you can have genes that are indicative that you may develop celiac disease, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you will develop it. What they're used for most often is to rule it out. So if you don't have the the genes, then you will not develop celiac disease. But they are not uh, enough to be used to diagnose. Okay. Now, if a person receives then a positive diagnosis or even if the antibody tests come back negative but they're still having symptoms, at that point, do they follow a gluten-free diet? It might be recommended if even if the blood tests are not indicative of celiac disease but the individual believes very, very strongly that they have a problem with gluten then their doctor may trial them on a gluten-free diet to see if their symptoms resolve. And if they do, then that individual can be, uh, may be considered as, as having non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Okay. Now, if a listener is lucky enough to be able to go and see a dietitian with your level of expertise, what would you tell them to do first? First, in terms of once they have a diagnosis, Mm -hmm. or first, in terms of they suspect they may have a problem? Let's go with first they suspect a problem. Make an appointment with their primary care physician. Okay. And ask very firmly (laughs) to have the blood test. And just keep asking until they actually are, are granted those tests. And so, as I say, they don't need to, I mean, that's just a very simple test. Most people have had blood tests. So they don't even need to think uh, biopsy. Okay. That is the first step. And the reason people want to do that is that if they, a lot of people go on a gluten-free diet without having a definitive diagnosis. And oftentimes, they will feel better because they may, in fact, have celiac disease or they have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. The reason why your listeners really want to know if they have celiac disease is that this is a very serious autoimmune disease. Before we knew uh, what the treatment was, which is the gluten-free diet, children died of this disease. They would have bloated bellies and skinny arms and legs because they were incredibly malnourished. 
So you really do want to know because if you have celiac disease, your doctor will then check you to make sure you don't have anemia, check you for bone disease, and follow you for other autoimmune diseases that um, may be associated with celiac disease. Now, if you don't have celiac disease and you still have the non-celiac gluten sensitivity, you want to know that too because obviously you want to feel better. And unfortunately, when people do not have a definitive diagnosis, while they think, oh, I will follow this diet very strictly, a gluten-free diet, it is really hard to follow. And, mm-hmm. and if you don't have that definitive diagnosis, it may be a little bit easier to drink that beer or just eat the top of a pizza or occasionally have something that contains gluten. If you have a definitive diagnosis, it's much easier to stay on the diet. Mm -hmm. I've been thinking about how difficult it would be to avoid gluten. And I remember, I believe it was on your website that I read the obvious grains, the wheat, of course, but then there's also rye and barley and oats, which are not something that you'd think would would have gluten. How is it that oats contain gluten? Oats do not naturally contain gluten. They are considered a naturally gluten-free grain. However, they are very easily contaminated with wheat, barley, or rye. And so that is the reason why only labeled gluten-free oats and products containing oats should be eaten by somebody with celiac disease because they are so highly contaminated. And I know there are people out there that still don't believe that. But back in oh, it's 2004 now, I did a study where I looked at three brands of oats that are commonly available in supermarkets, a Quaker, McCann's, and Country Choice. And I tested four different lots of each of those three brands. Now, these this is back when, when oats were not really labeled gluten-free. And none of those brands could be relied upon to be gluten-free every single time. And some of them contained considerable amounts of gluten. Now we have specialty manufacturers of gluten-free oats, and they take extraordinary steps to make sure that their products are truly gluten-free. So it really is important that somebody has celiac disease, that they only eat the, the labeled products. And also, it is the recommendation of the American Dietetic Association that because there is a, a very, very small percentage of people who have celiac disease who also, for reasons we don't fully understand, they also react to the protein in oats. It is very important that you have your your doctor or your dietitians okay to add oats to your diet and also that you limit your intake to 50 grams of dry oats per day. Now, I was surprised to hear you say beer. (laughs) (laughs) How is it that beer is a problem? Well, beer, by definition, is a malt beverage. And malt is made from barley unless another source is used, in in which case you would then, you can have what are called gluten-free beers. They're they're not the same as as a malt beverage as regulated under the the TTB. 
So most beers contain malt, and they may also contain wheat or rye or, or barley anyway, but they all contain, by definition, malt, except for the special gluten-free beers. And so that's why people with celiac disease must stay away from regular beer. Well, and I want to let our listeners know at this point that, Trish, you're known as the gluten-free dietitian, and your website is excellent, and it's www.glutenfreedietitian.com, and you list the different foods that should be avoided, and you give explanations. So you're a wealth of a resource, and I greatly appreciate that. What are the biggest challenges that you hear from your clientele? I think that... For the most part, people get confused about how to tell whether a food that isn't labeled gluten-free is gluten-free. They um, are confused about what ingredients they need to look for. And it really is so much simpler now than it ever used to be. Mm-hmm. People don't necessarily believe that, but it's true. And it, it's it, you really only need to look for Six ingredients on most foods, foods regulated by the FDA. You're looking for, and I shouldn't even say ingredients, I should say words or ingredients. You're looking for wheat, you're looking for barley, rye, oats. Now, this is for foods not labeled gluten-free, malt, and brewer's yeast. And the reason you're looking for brewer's yeast is that it tends to be used as a flavoring in foods, and it tends to be a byproduct of the beer brewing process and as such will be contaminated with malt. But it really is those six ingredients. And now there's some of your listeners who who have celiac disease are thinking, no way, she's wrong. But <laughs> it really is the case and it's thanks in large part to FALCPA, which is the FDA's Food Allergen Labeling and Consumer Protection Act. So any of those so-called questionable ingredients that people always used to worry about, like modified food starch and dextrin, if those ingredients contain wheat protein, then the word wheat must be listed on the food label, either in the ingredient list or in a separate contained statement. So it really, really is that simple. There, It is a little bit different for USDA-regulated foods, your meat products, your poultry products, and your egg products, and uh, I, I don't want to go into that level of detail, but if any of your listeners want that level of detail, it's all on my website. Wonderful. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Tricia Thompson. She is an internationally recognized expert on celiac disease and the gluten-free diet. She is a registered dietitian in private practice on the East Coast. I have to ask you, Tricia, it's one thing if you're shopping in the grocery store and, and we're looking at labels, and that opens up a whole issue that we'll get to here in a minute with regard to FDA labeling. But I would imagine that going to restaurants is really difficult. It is, but again, it has never been easier because so many restaurants now have gluten-free menus or they mark gluten-free items on their menus also Chefs and food service workers seem to be much more aware of the gluten-free diet. So, yes, it is challenging, and you need to make sure that the restaurant is aware of the foods and ingredients that you can't eat, and there are also issues of cross-contamination. But having to follow a gluten-free diet is no reason not to enjoy dining out. Mm-hmm. Well, all your friends decide to go to a pizza joint. 
what do you do? There are some pizza places that have gluten-free uh, pizza crust. Pizzeria Uno, I believe uh-huh. that's a national chain. Yeah, I know we have them in Massachusetts, but they have a gluten-free menu you can look up. And I know there are more and more pizza places. I used to call them pizza parlors, and my son tells me that that's outdated terminology. <laughs> There's no such thing as a pizza parlor anymore. <laughs> but more and more you can find uh, gluten-free pizzas. I would recommend uh, one place to go and check out to see if you have any pizza places in your area is the Gluten-Free Restaurant Awareness Program run by the Gluten Intolerance Group. You can go to their website, and you can access their restaurant awareness program. And if one of the pizza joints or places or parlors has gluten-free pizzas and they've been uh, approved by the restaurant awareness program, then that will be listed there. Uh, The National Foundation for Celiac Awareness also has restaurant programs. I don't know if they list specific places on their website. Well, and you listed those organizations at your website. So, again, going to that glutenfreedietitian.com site is a wonderful place for for anyone listening who wants to know more about where to find gluten-free products. I remember, Trisha, 30 years ago, I did have a patient with celiac disease, one, one patient, and I remember having to pretty much go through all kinds of catalogs just to find him a very not good tasting bread. So I agree with you. We have come light years forward in terms of the kinds of products that are available. I think about two children in schools and how are the school systems, are they able to accommodate the child with a gluten intolerance? I think a lot of them try. I think what parents need is a letter from their child's pediatrician saying that this is a necessary diet and parents have had a lot of luck that way. There's also something called a 504 plan or or process that you can go through to, I think, and I I would have to reread this information. This is also on my website. Okay. Okay. There is a list of resources that parents can find on on what to do if your child needs a gluten-free diet in school. They, it probably, it may not be accommodated if your child's been diagnosed with non-celiac gluten sensitivity, but it probably will be if they've been diagnosed with celiac disease. Hmm. Too bad I can't get my fingers on that. That's okay. It's right available away. on your but website. It is there. That's fine. The other thing that you've got on your website that I love is the gluten-free watchdog, where you basically take an unbiased look at the -the state-of-the-art gluten-free food testing data for consumers, and you've got different products and a report. Do you find that most of the products that are labeled as gluten-free really are? I am so, thank you so much for mentioning. This is a new endeavor of mine, Gluten-Free Watchdog, where I am, as you say, I am basically randomly pulling products, labeled gluten-free products from store shelves or ordering them via mail order and sending them unopened to a lab for testing using state-of-the-art testing, the same testing I would use and the same testing protocol if I were submitting the results to a peer-reviewed journal for publication. I've tested 
about, I would say, 25 and 30 products so far. I'm not testing a lot because it's very, very expensive. And I am absolutely floored by the results. Manufacturers, for the most part, are doing an awesome job. Most of the products, and I've tested a wide variety of products, breads and flours and grains and cookies and pasta, most of the products are testing below five parts per million, and five parts per million is the limit of quantification, the point at which we can actually tell the amount of gluten that's in a product. And most of them are coming in under five parts per million. There has been one that's tested high, um, but only one, and high as in above 20 parts per million. And I would never have guessed, if you had asked me before I started this program, if that's what I would have expected to see, I would have told you no. So I am very pleasantly surprised. Most of these products do not have any of the specialty certifications from the gluten-free certification organization or or CSA. They are just uh, simply labeled gluten-free. So even though we do not have a final rule from the FDA on what gluten-free means, most of the manufacturers who are labeling their product, at least the ones that I've tested to date, and again, I haven't tested that many, but it's it's been a, a pretty broad selection, big manufacturers, small manufacturers. They, they It's astounding me how well they're doing. Do you want to reveal which product went over that lower limit? No. Okay. And actually, there it's the product that went over the 20 parts per million, which is the the FDA has a proposed rule for labeling foods gluten-free. And under the proposed rule, foods have to test less than 20 parts per million. So this is why so many of the products coming in under 5 parts per million is such good news. Because there are a lot of people out there that think the 20 parts per million is too high. And so for those people, I would say so many of these products are testing below. Not all of them. And again, we do, we have had the one product. And you're going to occasionally find that. I imagine you're going to have the occasional labeled gluten-free product that tests high. But for the most part, uh, people, uh, consumers can have confidence in that gluten-free label. And, and of I... course, I would love... Uh, to have, this is a subscription site, it costs money to to do this testing, obviously. So I would love the support from the gluten-free community. Well, and I I did want to mention that, that this is a $4.99 per month, and you can access all of the reports. You test at least four products each month, and you also send out email alerts. So I think that it's a very good investment in protecting our gut health. And I'm really glad that you're making the service available. Let's talk about that FDA comment period, because this is an opportunity for we as food-eating citizens to participate in the labeling process. And I know you have directions for how to comment. Yes. As your listeners know who have celiac disease, the FDA has been involved in gluten-free rulemaking for a number of years. They recently reopened the comment period for consumers and all interested parties to comment on the proposed rule as well as the safety assessment that was released 
uh, along with this federal register notice. And the uh, URL to access <laughs> this stuff is, is pretty long, so there are two ways I recommend doing this. The first is to simply go to www.fda.gov and in the search engine, just simply write in gluten. And what will come up, obviously, is a list of results. And there is the second report, at least that's coming up right now, says FDA reopens comment period on proposed gluten-free food. If you click on that, that announcement includes the links to be able to, to comment um, on the FDA rule, how to submit comments to dockets. Now, your listeners should know that these become public. This will all, all their comments will be in the public domain. The other way to do it is to go to my gluten-free dietitian website, click on newsletter, and the first uh, article that will come up in the main body of the page is an article on the safety assessment. If they just scroll to the bottom of that, it has all of the various links for the Federal Register Notice, the safety assessment, how to comment on the docket either through mail or via email. So, so either of those ways should get them to where they want to go. But I would encourage everybody, the FDA wants to hear from everyone, and they cannot take your comments under consideration unless they actually hear from you. What do you want to see the level at? <laughs> Funny you should ask me that question. I don't know. I have been a supporter of the less than 20 part per million amount, which is the direction, I think, based on what the FDA has in their Federal Register notice that was posted August 3rd. I believe that's the direction that they're going to go. I have always been a supporter of the less than 20 parts per million. It correlates well with, with the international community. It uh, most likely is a safe level for a lot of people with celiac disease. But I must say that given a few things, I'm, I'm having more and more difficulty justifying that position. We do have the safety assessment, which came out with some very, very low numbers. I actually reviewed that safety assessment in 2008. And while the numbers may not be accurate as far as the way the safety assessment was conducted, it may not be the way that you do a, a safety assessment for something like gluten versus something that is a toxin for everybody in the community. Trisha? Um, but we do have these very low safety assessment numbers. And then you have the Trisha? numbers that most people want to see, or at least most people based on surveys that I've done. They want the amount lower. And then, of course, we see the amounts that I'm getting from Gluten-Free Watchdog, which are less than five, so, no, I will be fine with the less than 20. I also will be fine if it goes lower, but I certainly can understand consumers who really want to see a lower amount, either Trisha, a 5 or a 10. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to cut this conversation off because okay. we only have 30 minutes, but I want to remind our listeners to go to www.glutenfreedietitian.com and hear all of your comments about the gluten-free issues with regard to labeling and disease state. 
In closing, I need to thank you so much for sharing your expertise with our listeners. To remind our listeners, too, that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Trisha, thank you so much for your dedication in your work, and thank you for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Melinda.